Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of April 28th. Reactions to the April FOMC. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our takeaways from today's FOMC meeting and provide a quick overview of recent developments in the credit spread market. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, I think expectations were quite low coming into this Fed meeting, and certainly the committee did not disappoint on that front. Starting specifically with the statement, I don't think we have to spend almost any time here. The statement was essentially unchanged from last month, some minor tweaks here and there, nothing I think worth talking about. There was no change to the Fed's administered rates, RRP or IOER. Even the press conference, I mean, I took some notes here. I think there are some things worth discussing. But compared to previous Fed meetings, I think even the press conference wasn't as exciting this time around. But before diving into some of those specific topics, I guess just from a high level, what were your takeaways? Yeah, about the same. I thought it was one of the less eventful FOMC meetings that we've had in some time. I thought Chair Powell tilted dovish for sure. I think there's been a lot of economic optimism baked in. And I think that was apparent in the statement. Like you mentioned, there weren't many changes to the statement, but I thought most of the changes were generally referring to improvements in the economic outlook. There was talk about growth in the employment picture, improvements in sectors that have been most impacted by the pandemic. Then inflation has ticked up, even though it's due to transitory factors. So a lot of optimism there. But then Chair Powell starts out his press conference with the question, is it time to start talking about talking about tapering? And he said, no, it's not. And we'll let the market know, but we're still making progress towards these goals. And it's not yet time to start even thinking about tapering. So I thought that was pretty dovish, not necessarily a surprising answer. I think we probably could have guessed that that's where he would have gone with that question, but still notable nonetheless, given that economists have started to push forward expectations for tapering with many expecting it within the next six months or so. Yeah. And maybe Powell's stance sort of stops that creep. It's sort of been creeping in, people talking about tapering earlier and earlier. And I think the chair, like you said, it doesn't come as a big surprise, but he came out pretty forcefully and said, we're not even starting that process yet. And that process is going to take months, as we all know. So that was my first note as well. Then, you know, we always entitle these episodes reactions to the FOMC. But if we didn't, I would have certainly entitled this episode base effects and bottlenecks, because seemingly the majority of the press conference after that first question was focused on inflation in some flavor, just what if inflation is getting away or how do we know about inflation and blah, blah, blah. And, and the chairman just kept harping over and over again on the base effects that are viewed as transitory, as well as supply bottlenecks that are likely to be transitory. We can't know that yet, but the Fed, at least initially, is going to be viewing them as transitory. And any increase in inflation that we are definitely going to see in the next few months is going to basically be thrown out the window. So nothing surprising on the inflation front, though I did make one note. Powell really seemed to be harping on the role that wage inflation is going to take in 
any sustained inflation that comes out of this. I think it was actually the second question where he was asked something about inflation expectations possibly taking off. I don't remember the exact wordage, but his response was something like inflation expectations really can't increase without labor slack dwindling, or there's a very low likelihood that that will happen. We need to see that labor market slack come down before sustained inflation can take its place. The obvious implication here being wage inflation. Then later in the press conference, he got a different question, which I found interesting. It was a question on increased reports of businesses being unable to find workers as the economy reopens, that there aren't people to go to work. And I think Powell had three interesting takeaways from that. The first, at least interesting to me, was that he made it seem more widespread than I guess I thought or realized. And I haven't done a significant amount of work into it, but he made it seem like, oh, the Fed has the longest, largest network of business connections. And I'm sure that's true. And he said that this is something they're hearing commonly, that there's a lot of reports of businesses being unable to find workers. So I thought that was notable. Two, he noted that it was not being accompanied by any noticeable increase in wages or any evidence of wage inflation at this point. There's probably a lot of explanatory factors for that. Maybe we can talk about it later in the podcast, but I think that's worth noting there. And then third, and what I want to focus on here is that he started talking about potential drivers of this labor shortage. And he listed, I didn't have time to write them all down here, but it had to be five or six, you know, things like geographical dislocations and not having the right tools, a training mismatch there. I don't remember them all. And didn't mention anything about stimulus. And to the very end, he sort of said something like, well, then also extraordinary unemployment benefits expire in September. So, quote, to the extent that that's a factor, end quote, that should start to fade in the next few months. So, To the extent that that's a factor, I personally think that's a huge factor. But what did you take away from that? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I certainly noted this answer to the question as well. In terms of the job mismatches, I wrote down skills mismatches. You said geographical. There's also been virus concerns that have been keeping people out of the labor force. And then he also talked about people who have said they've retired since the onset of the pandemic, but that he expects them to some degree to return to the labor market. And then, of course, the unemployment benefits running out in September. So I thought just taking all of those things together was interesting. Chair Powell clearly believes that labor force participation is going to start coming back over the next you know, six months or so. And it'll be interesting to watch that and what implications that has for labor market slack. Yeah, because he said at least five times throughout the press conference, 8.5 million people are without a job that had one before. And yet we're seeing this slack. And yeah, I get that there are certainly other factors. You mentioned the virus. I forgot about that one. Certainly some people are worried about going back to work. I think the chair talked about schools not being open yet and that potentially restraining some people from being able to return to the labor force. But if you have all these sort of obstacles that when we're talking about geographical mismatches and skills mismatches, we're not talking about cyclical unemployment here. That's structural unemployment. You know, so we can just sort of file that into a different category. So then the cyclical unemployment should be these near-term frictions that are then over time theoretically resolved. And even to some extent, structural unemployment can be cured over a long period of time. But if there is all these either short or long-term barriers to employment, that would say to me that if we're going to see wage inflation, we should be seeing some, you know, and we're really not. And I guess to broaden that out, There's a few different things to take away. You said at the beginning that the Fed was very, very dovish, and I think that's the case. I mean, we're already on record as saying we're going to miss to the high side on inflation for a significant period of time. That was a major shift last year by the Fed. But if we're not seeing wage inflation, it worries me for the long-term view on inflation. And then to look at it from the employment side, once again, Powell took time during the Q&A to mention the unemployment rate in minority sectors. And I think 
obviously there's disagreement here, but I think that in the current cycle, the Fed is going to take a more explicit view on not just minimizing unemployment, but also minimizing unemployment in minority sectors as well. And if that's the case, you know, you can make an argument here that the Fed is going to remain dovish, not just on the inflation side, where inflation is going to run hotter than previous Feds have ever let it, but they're going to let employment run hotter than ever before, pushing down into the low single digits, theoretically, to try and bring down specific targeted unemployment rates. Yeah, Dan, and I think that just goes to the Fed's view of the labor market, looking at it more holistically as opposed to just looking at the unemployment rate. And that's been a change that we've seen over the past business cycle, where They've emphasized other things than the unemployment rate, such as the underemployment rate. We've seen increased talk about labor force participation. More recently, yeah, we've seen talk about unemployment rates among different groups. And that just goes to the Fed's view that it's not simply about this one unemployment number. It's really about more broadly eliminating slack in the labor market. And to me, that implies that it gives the Fed a little bit more room to let the labor market get hotter and hotter because even as the unemployment rate gets low, they can find other pockets of the labor market to point to and say there's still slack and we can keep rates low, we can expand our balance sheet, etc. So that just is another dovish tilt to me from today's press conference. Again, it's not something new, but it's just more of the same emphasis on broad labor market slack that the Fed's trying to eliminate. Yeah. And again, just to hammer the point home, the Fed has a massive balance sheet they could deploy at any time to combat inflation were they ever to get it. And he said that again in today's Q&A. Like, don't think we won't fight inflation if we ever need to. And they certainly have a lot of weapons to do that. They don't have as many weapons to fight against continued slack. It's just pretty clear to me that the Fed is going to be extremely, extremely accommodative for a long time, probably even more accommodative than what the market is currently pricing in, which is pretty extreme accommodation. But yeah, now I think we've probably covered that topic sufficiently. So moving on to the next thing, Powell talked a bit about digital currencies from central banks. Probably don't need to spend time there. I guess for the rest of the press conference, it was really two main themes that I think worth talking about. The first being financial stability and the second on the regulation front. Let's start with financial stability because I think that there's less to talk about here. Dan, anything you saw worth taking away? Yeah, he went through those four pillars that we talked about, I think, after the last press conference where he talked about the status of each of those as it relates to financial stability. And of those four pillars, just as a refresher, he talked about leverage in the financial system, funding risks, asset prices, and the household sector. And of those four, he said three were in pretty good shape. Leverage in the financial system, he said, is not an issue. Funding risks are currently low. And then he said the household sector is in pretty good shape, and it's been supported by fiscal stimulus. He did acknowledge that asset prices are potentially a problem here. He said that things are a little bit frothy and was more forthcoming about the Fed's role in elevated asset prices than he had been in previous press conferences. Overall, he said that the financial stability picture is mixed but manageable. So I thought that was an interesting takeaway. Yeah, interesting. Not the first time he's insinuated some degree of exuberance in asset price markets. I think, I can't remember exactly. I feel like this is the first time he said the word froth, which I thought was interesting. But He's hinted at there being potentially some asset price overvaluation in asset prices in the past few sessions. Nobody's cared. I don't think that is going to change this time around. You talked about all four pillars of the Fed's framework for financial stability, and one of them being funding risks, which he said are very low. But then he said there is some concern in the money market fund space. I wasn't sure what to make of that at first. Then I guess it became clear to me we started talking a bit about regulation. Then I understood what he was talking about. So on the regulation front, what I actually thought was the biggest takeaway from today's press conference, 
he fielded two separate questions really on regulation. The first one was related to, how do you say it, Archegos? I've been saying Archegos, and I probably will continue to say it for the rest of the podcast, so I apologize. But the first one was relating to Archegos, and I guess it was a question regarding basically how the Fed missed this. And the chair said, you know, we don't run these banks for them. We supervise to make sure they have the tools they need to be able to oversee. We don't run their business for them. It looked like there might have been some breakdowns in risk management, some of them, not all, some banks. And uh, it ended up being something that was not systemic. The numbers were not big enough. So basically just saying this wasn't our fault, but he did not specifically mention regulation at all here, which was my takeaway at first. But then later he got a direct question on regulation and he took it in kind of two different ways. First, he talked about capital requirements on banks. Secondly, he talked about non-bank financial intermediaries. And quickly on banks, he basically said, Bank capital is good. It's gone up significantly in the last 10 years as Basel III regulations were implemented. It's withstood stress tests and obviously the COVID-19 event. So bank capital is in a good place. Then he talked a bit about regulation on the non-bank side, which our listeners will know is a theme we've been following here for the past couple of Fed meetings. So this is something I was particularly keyed in on. And for the first time, he said that during March of last year, he specifically identified money market funds and corporate bond funds as exhibiting, quote unquote, run dynamics. And he was talking so fast, I couldn't write it all down here. But he said something like, they can't just count on the Fed and other central banks to step in. They have to have the wherewithal to stand on their own. And that the Fed and other global regulators are looking at reform or ways to structure them. I can't remember exactly what he said. I didn't have time to write it all down word for word, but that was a high-level takeaway. Again, insinuating that there will be some more regulation coming for non-bank financial intermediaries, but then specifically talking about corporate bond funds. And I think that's really important when you think about the role that leverage has played in bond funds for the past couple of years, specifically with rates very, very low, and what that could mean going forward. That was definitely one of my bigger takeaways, too. And as you mentioned, with rates so low, there's just been an increase in leverage throughout the financial system and certainly has been a big part of corporate bond funds as well. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on going forward, I think, for any further breadcrumbs from regulators, including the Fed, on that topic. And Dan, he also talked about treasury market structure and selling by foreign central banks last March. And he alluded specifically to some regulation that might be in the works, specifically that is being led by Treasury. Yeah, certainly. He talked about Treasury market structure and talked about how the foreign central bank selling last year really overwhelmed dealer balance sheets and the Fed had to step in. And then he talked about how Treasury supply is going to be larger going forward and that basically that the street has to be able to intermediate large flows. And so two things of note there, he said, and this is a direct quote, Treasury is going to be leading this end quote, which to me made it sound like something's in the works and Treasury's leading it. So something's coming down the pipe, who knows what. But then that made me think about the SLR and thinking about Treasury exemptions on the SLR. If the Fed knows that bank balance sheets aren't as able to intermediate flows, certainly part of that is because of leverage ratios, right? And giving that treasury exemption maybe helps the market liquidity there. So the chair didn't connect those two. That's me doing that. But his comments made it seem just slightly more likely to me. You know, we've been talking about the permanent SLR exemption that's coming as potentially being just reserves and not reserves and treasuries. After the chair talked about this specifically, when he didn't really have to, it seemed to with the question that he was asked, it just made me think that maybe the SLR exemption will be reserves and treasuries, just a little more than I already did. Just two more quick topics, Dan, from the FOMC. Want to get your thoughts on housing? It was seemed to be a, a relatively common theme throughout, and specifically one question that I thought was a good one. 
talking about, well, you said earlier in the press conference that housing conditions are quite good. We're seeing huge growth, blah, 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 blah. But we're also buying $40 billion a month in MBS. Doesn't totally seem to match up. So did you have any thoughts on Powell's stance on housing? Yeah, I thought Powell seemed pretty constructive on housing overall. He talked about how people borrowing have good credit and there's not a housing bubble. Even though housing prices continue to go up, he made it seem like it was more of a supply issue than anything else. He said that over time, builders are going to start to catch up with supply and that that it's going to find its equilibrium. And then on the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities, that was a question that I was kind of waiting for for this press conference, for someone to say, look, the market and the economy are chugging along. What is the need for the Fed's continued involvement in the market? And I don't think we got much from Powell on that topic specifically, not that we were expecting any insights from him on that, but I just thought it was an interesting question and an interesting juxtaposition that the Fed is still buying a lot of mortgage-backed securities while the housing market is really booming. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and finally, the last topic that I guess we should talk about here is just the short end, the RRP IOER debate. I think actually heading into a not highly anticipated Fed meeting, this was maybe the thing people were looking most forward to. And those people were certainly disappointed, not just because the Fed did not make any adjustments to those rates, but because it didn't even seem like they were close. They did get one question out in the Q&A, and <laughs> Chairman Powell really couldn't have cared much less, huh? Fed funds rate is still comfortably toward the middle of the range, he said. Downward pressure on the short end they expect to continue as TGA continues to put downward pressure on short rates. But at the end of the day, he said conditions were, quote, fine, and that they saw no need to make those adjustments at this time. They will do so if that need does arise, but I mean, there's no need at this point. It's hard to see when that need will be. I mean, we see RRP usage up over 120 billion now, so for one basis point for months. Dan, what could you even foresee as constituting a need for the Fed to step in at this point? Like, what more could happen? No, yeah, you're right. And I completely agree. It's just going to be a matter of Fed funds, it seems like, as long as Fed funds remains above five basis points from the bottom of the range, currently five basis points, as long as we're still there and SOFR is positive, even if it continues to set at one basis point with continued downward pressure, I don't see the Fed making any moves here. I think the chair was pretty specific today that the Fed funds is the policy rate, and that is going to be the impetus for us to use our tools. And if that's the case, we may never see a technical adjustment. I mean, Fed funds has been seven basis points now. I'd have to look to know exactly, but for a long time, you know, for the majority of the time, I think, or maybe all the time, that SOFR's dropped to one basis point, except for one day. And that one day was month end March. And, you know, we're hearing some pressure this week that Fed funds is maybe trading lower than seven and might actually print lower than seven. But again, we're heading into month end when it's a well-known dynamic that foreign banks in the U.S. start to look at doing window dressing, particularly European banks, and they reduce their demand for Fed funds. So that rate starts to drop. But then as soon as month end or quarter end passes, you know, that demand comes right back. And it's still, even at seven basis points, the cheapest source of unsecured funding for a Yankee bank. And there's going to be that demand at seven. And, you know, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that it drops beneath seven, but it hasn't happened yet. And to me, that's sort of the biggest indication. If it hasn't happened yet, what's going to drive that, you know, outside of a transitory month end type thing? And I think we'll need more than that. And so we came into this not expecting any technical adjustment. And I'm starting to think we might not get one at all, frankly. So yes, we'll keep our eyes on it, but uh, certainly doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon. Dan, anything else on the Fed before we just wrap up with a brief overview on credit? No, those were the big things. Uh, there were a couple other notes, but nothing that I think 
you know, warrants much further discussion. I think we've covered most of the important topics today. Well, in that case, you know, looking down, we've been talking for a while already, so maybe we'll just try to keep this relatively brief. But just wanted to give an update on credit. And the update is there is not much of an update. Spreads continue to trade in a very, very narrow range. Yesterday closing at 88 basis points, so within one basis point of cyclical lows. But perhaps the lack of volatility is in itself notable. In fact, it's historical. Isn't that right? Yes. So spreads have been in a four basis point range over the month of April, which is actually the tightest range that credit spreads have traded in since April of 2017. So, you know, this continued lack of volatility, it's not clear what's going to break us out of this range. I think it's probably going to be technically driven, but there are some risks on the horizon that we've been talking about increasingly that have actually driven us to remove our preference for triple B rated debt. Yeah, our move to neutral at the beginning of March certainly looks good now that we've had the least movement in four years in a single month. But that's not really what we were getting at. It was just saying that there's just not upward potential in spreads at this point. We're at cyclical lows. We're very near historical lows, all-time lows of 84 basis points, which, by the way, came when rates were much higher. And I just really can't see much impetus to spreads narrowing. Like There's already so much optimism built in on the economic reopening that actually the economic reopening might be somewhat of a headwind, to be honest with you, because if we think about what can happen when the economy reopens fully, one of three things is going to happen. The first is it in some way disappoints. People don't return in the way they did. Things are permanently changed, whatever, however you want to look at it. The recovery disappoints. If that happens, yes, we'll see treasury rates rally. But to me, that weaker economic recovery scenario comes inextricably with renewed fears of downgrades and defaults. Like if this economic recovery isn't going to be robust enough to support business, what is? You know, So you're going to have downgrades and defaults, which should at least lead to transitory spread widening, even if ultimately spreads can go lower later in the cycle. The second scenario is all the optimism built in is met and then some, and we see inflation take off in a way that we haven't seen in 20 years. Certainly possible with where we are and how much accommodation is in the system. But if that happens, we're going to see treasury rates go much higher, spreads go higher mechanically as a result of that. But then also, you know, there's much has been made about the refinancing fears and what it could do for corporations that have grown reliant on cheap debt for the better part of the past decade. You'll see that conversation reignited with higher rates and also a spread widener. Then the only scenario, the third scenario is what I call the Goldilocks scenario, where you see a, a robust economic recovery with inflation even going as high as 3%. But that being viewed as manageable, treasury rates stay stable, sort of softly, slowly go up, and you see credit outperform on improving technicals. It's possible this is a scenario, but it's the price to perfection, the Goldilocks scenario, and I think it's a narrow path there, and I just don't think it's very likely. So from that standpoint, it's hard to see spreads going much narrower, but at the same time, it's going to take time for all this stuff to happen. So the neutral stance I like, we keep that that way, but we've been overweighting triple Bs this whole time because, well, we didn't see much upward potential. There wasn't much risk of anything causing significant spread widening. So we still wanted to at least get extra yield, extra carry while we sat in this range. The move away from the trip will be overweight at this point reflects not much of a change in our view and from a macro standpoint, as much as it does just the increasing odds that something happens that could cause a spread widening. And that could be something like more speculation on non-bank financial intermediate regulation or talks of tapering or what have you. It's not immediately clear, which is why we don't think it's a high likelihood. But given how widespread vaccination rates now in the US, how high they are, and you know we're sort of getting close to that period of time where we're going to start seeing actual data, it just seems like the risk is getting higher to me. And 
what we've seen in the past is that spreads, at least over the past decade, they don't necessarily grind wider. They tend to grind narrower, but then you see these transitory kind of quick repricings wider. Isn't that right? We wrote about this on Friday, and the way that we presented it was we looked at spreads versus their 90-session moving average. We found that credit index spreads tend to trade narrow of their moving average on 66% of days. Now, what this implies is that spreads are generally moving narrower over a long period of time, and then they shoot wider during periods of relatively intense risk-off. So we highlighted just four such periods of risk-off since the financial crisis and noted that during other times, spreads are generally on a often multi-year trend lower. And I think this just goes to show the asymmetric risk profile to spreads, particularly as they trade right now at the bottom end of trading ranges. Sure, spreads could continue to compress and move slightly narrower over the next several months. But as you mentioned, there are significant risks on the horizon, including potential for regulation, tax increases, Fed tapering, that hold the potential to send spreads wider in a sharp risk-off fashion. Yeah, and the final piece of the puzzle you alluded to it is relative value. I mean, we've been favoring triple Bs and sectors exposed to the opening for a while now, but any relative value that was left in those sectors has been pretty much wrung out. You know, we took a look at our heat map that sort of tracks the credit spread relationships all the way across the credit spectrum. From the very, very top, SSAs and agencies down to high yield, triple Cs and what have you. And, you know, it's not going to come as a surprise to everyone here that spreads are tight. But the potentially interesting part is, the further out the credit spectrum you go, the tighter it gets. I mean, it was a uniform shift in color from less red to dark red, the further down the credit spectrum you went. So just with how much spreads have performed and risk factors potentially starting to gather on the horizon and RV really solidly favoring up in credit moves, at this point, it just made sense to us to move up in credit over the period of the next couple of weeks where we expect things to stay relatively range-bound and position a portfolio for a very short-lived burst wider at some point in time over the summer likely that we can use to just get a better buying opportunity and look to reset longs there because it's not going to be a significant move wider. We're not talking 30 basis points or anything most likely, but there's just not a ton of value in spreads right now and we think there will be better value in the months ahead. Dan, I think that about wraps it up, unless you have anything else you want to add. No, I think that does it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. 
Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 